Welcome to The Nine Line, your news and information source for healthcare-related issues impacting Southern Nevada veterans, and a production of the VA Southern Nevada Healthcare System. And now, here's your hosts, John Archiquette and Joshua Gray. Hi, welcome to The Nine Line Podcast. I'm your host, John Archiquette. Joining me is my good buddy and co-host, Joshua Gray. You're back. I'm back. Again. Yeah. <laughs> you left me. I know. So Again. You know what? You should be used to it by now, though. I'm used to being left, yes. I'm um, used to that. So for those of you guys who joined the uh, the podcast last week, Josh was hosting solo because I was out in uh, Snowmass, Colorado with the Winter Sports Clinic for Disabled Veterans, and it was awesome. Yeah, um, you were skiing and having a great time. <laughs> yeah. It was it's a great experience um, for anyone who has not had a chance to to go see that event to be a part of that event or to you know see some of the the photos and videos that came from it um, it's a really fantastic event that is open to you know all disabled veterans who are enrolled in the VA um, in the upcoming newsletter we are going to feature an article about how you can become involved with the winter sports clinic the summer sports clinic uh, creative Arts Festival, Golden Age Games. There's all kinds of opportunities for veterans of all ages and all disability levels and all experience levels when it comes to these sports uh, to take advantage of it because there's some really cool opportunities and um, they're back in person now, which, you know, they during the pandemic, they were doing at-home activities and things like that, um, but they're back in person and it's fantastic. So uh, I look forward to, to sharing more of that as we go on, but... Um, yeah, happy to be back joining the podcast. Well, thanks. Well, I'm glad you're back, too, because I'm much more comfortable in this role than your role. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've got uh, a returning guest Yay. who we're excited to have back and in a familiar role as well and a brand new guest for the first time. So I'd like to uh, welcome Dr. Nicole Anders. She's joining us again as the representative from the Military Sexual Trauma. Uh, she's the coordinator for the program. Yes, I am. Thank you very much for having me back. And you've been here several times. It's like and my fourth podcast, I think. I think so, yeah. yeah. Um, but you took a little hiatus, and you were the Employee Whole Health Coordinator. Yeah, I was in the acting role of Employee Whole Health for a little bit, but MST, I've been the MST Coordinator for our, our hospital since 2016, January 2016. So I'm back to you know, my lane, what I know, what I'm an expert in, so I'm happy to talk about all of that today. Well, happy to have you here back and uh, talking about that. And... We have, here for the first time, a relatively new employee here at VA Southern Nevada Healthcare System. It's uh, Felicia Duville, correct? Absolutely, yes. Okay, so I want to make sure I pronounce that right. <laughs> and uh, you are here as the representative for the Intimate Partner Violence Assistance Program. Yes, that's correct. Um, the IBVAP, for short, is a person-centered, uh, recovery-oriented assistance program for veterans, uh, their family members or caregivers, or VHA employees who find themselves either using or experiencing intimate partner violence or at risk of either of those two. So and you know, excited. that's something that, that we have um, talked a little bit about here um, at the VA, but it hasn't been a program that we featured on the podcast. So it's definitely something we wanted to kind of delve a little bit more into. Uh, and of course, with April being Sexual Assault Awareness Month, it's know the perfect time to to bring that topic up and and talk about all those things that those will cover um and we'll get into that in a little bit later in the podcast because there's a, a lot of topics i want to cover with that um but you know with april being sexual assault awareness month that's you know one of the big features that we've been you know really focusing on at the va over the last couple of years 
uh, since I've been here. There's a lot of events that kind of tie in with that. Um, one of the big ones that's got the highest visibility, I think, is the Denim Day. Yes. And that's coming up April 27th? Yep. It's always the last Wednesday of April, so I believe this year it's the 27th. And so um, Denim Day is something that we've done at this VA historically, I think, the last four or five years. And a lot of federal organizations do it, and even non-federal organizations do it. It's pretty It's pretty become a lot of a national you know, visibility mm-hmm. day, as you say. And so Denim Day, how it started, so I'll give the little history of it. So Denim Day arose because there was a court case, I think it got obviously to the federal level, where there was a young woman who was sexually assaulted and by um, an instructor. And in the court case, he was found not guilty originally because she was wearing jeans, tight jeans, and they said that in order for him to get those jeans off of her, to assault her, she must have assisted because they were so tight. So there implied some consent. So obviously, as you listen to me say this, I can see everyone's face and my own internal reaction is appalled. Um, and this was, you know, I think, I can't recall the, the year, but it was several decades ago. So I, I hope that that wouldn't happen these days. But then what had happened was the the court case, there was appeals, it got overturned. Eventually he was you know, rightfully committed and, and um, found guilty. But the reason that all came is now we wear denim. Um, we wear jeans. They don't have to be tight. They just have to be jeans um, on the last Wednesday of April for Sexual Assault Awareness Month and just kind of showing it doesn't matter what you're wearing, what you look like, what you're doing, any of these kind of myths around sexual trauma and sexual assault where it's like, oh, they looked like this or they were asking for it, all these kind of things we've been hearing in the media. So that's what the jeans represent. You can wear jeans, a skirt, you wear whatever you want, and that doesn't imply consent nor give permission for any type of sexual assault or violence in any way. So. And, you know, having it been, you know, several decades since that court case mm-hmm. happened, you know, we'd like to think that we've come a long way since then. But, you know, every day you hear something in the news where, mm-hmm. you know, it, a congressman or, uh, you know, judge somewhere will make a ruling like that or will make a comment like that. So it's something that we... You know, it's still obviously a very important thing that we've come a long way, but we still have a long way to go. Absolutely. And I think, you know, working with those veterans who have experienced military sexual trauma, and that's obviously in my role what I do, we hear stories like this all the time. So um, we've come a long way and we haven't. So the visibility is very important, even though it's uncomfortable to talk about. It's really important that we talk about it. Um, And if anybody listening feels uncomfortable by this, great. It's something to talk about, you know definitely a good conversation absolutely and you know with with studies that have come out you know talking about the prevalence of of sexual assault cases you know recent studies said that one out of every three women in the general population will experience uh, some kind of sexual assault during their lifetime Uh, you know looking at our demographic the veteran population where do you think the veterans do you think they see more or less than what the general population would experience so it's interesting. I, I've, I've heard that st- statistic as well. And so r- with the veteran population, our statistic that we have collected in the most recent data is one in four, which is lower than the statistic that you're commenting on. But I believe that veteran population is absolutely one in three or one in two, or, or I don't even know. Because the reason is we only have the statistics of those people who report. 
right? And there's a lot that goes behind reporting when someone's in the military. There's can be a lot of consequences and a lot of, you know, very variables that people are deterred from reporting. So we don't have, a, you know, a lot of people are saying it's a very gross underestimate what we have. Um, so I would venture to say that, you know, it's one in three for sure. And, and I know we've talked on, on past podcasts, mm-hmm. just revolving around general mel- mental health issues, yeah. that one of the things that prevents men in the military mm. from from coming forward is that sense of machismo, right? Of course. That, that somehow you're judged to be not as much of a, a soldier, sailor, airman, marine if you come forward with these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. So, so how much do you think that plays into that? I mean, I know you said a lot of different things, but to me that seems like that would be one of the, the top line most important reasons why people don't, don't report. Absolutely, definitely. I mean, because I think you, you bring up a really good topic. Sexual assault, a lot of times we think, and we think women. Women are being sexually assaulted. And of course, women are being sexually assaulted, but men just as often as women, especially in the military, being sexually assaulted. And that's not something that we talk about as often. So I'm glad you brought that up. And it definitely is the culture, the machismo, the fear of retaliation, the fear of getting you know, in trouble because you can't just quit the military. You know, Sometimes people report and there's a long reporting process. They have to still work with or see someone who assaulted them or someone who witnessed the assault and didn't do anything. So it can be a very convoluted situation. So all that to say, I think all the numbers that we currently have are very underreported, especially for the male population. And, and especially when it comes into the, the military mindset, you know, um, sexual assault is, is not necessarily about the, the act, but about the power play. Right, is about asserting dominance over somebody. So you do see a lot more um, male-on-male sexual assault, mm-hmm. even though there may not be, even though both parties may be heterosexual, right? right. It, it, it's okay. some sort of hazing or it's some sort of power play like that. So, you know, I think that really speaks to what you, what you were just saying about Absolutely. The power atmosphere. and control is one of the, so, you know, when in the PTSD program here, we have a male sexual trauma group and a women's sexual trauma group, and we go over five main topics in that group. Um, and the veteran can go into whatever group they identify with. So we, we honor everyone's identities. Um, but just for for those reasons, it's like the groups are split. But we go over trust, safety, self-esteem, power and control, and intimacy. So power and control is a main topic, and it can have a lot to do with why the assault occurred in the first place and can also the aftermath of sexual assault, someone can feel powerless and feel like they have no control of their life or of their situation because of that. So it's definitely a really hot topic. Well, and kind of getting into what you had mentioned about, you know, having small groups in the the military and things like that. Like when you're deployed or when you are Mm -hmm. at a geographically separated location or, you know, even just in a small unit, you know, everyone's kind of family. Everyone. That's the hope. Yeah, exactly. But because of that, in addition, you know, there's more than just like the potential reprisal of your career. You know, there's the disruption of, of unit cohesion and the, you know, the, the morale that a lot of people take into account. And Nobody that. wants to be the troublemaker when they're deployed, right? Exactly. You're the one that causes the problem, right? Yeah. Well, and that's oftentimes why there's that extra layer, right? The feelings of betrayal after a sexual assault for somebody that you saw as your brother or sister in arms. Um, and I think it's, you know, just one more statistic. When someone deploys, the chances of them being sexually assaulted go up exponentially. 
because of the stress around that. So we do have a lot of sexual assault that occurs in the military and we do our best. You know, we do a lot of outreach currently like with Nellis and the, the um, and Creech and the Air Force bases around here to do preventative measures. And of course here at the VA, we're always looking at the aftermath, but they're, you know, we're doing our best and we can't do things if we don't know about it. So it's important to report. And you know, that's, that's something that a lot of people, you know, at the time, you know, maybe they don't want to report it, but what happens if years down the road, they're out of the military and it's something that they're starting to get nightmares over, or it's just, it's something that's affecting their, their current relationships. You know, is there a statute of limitations that they... That was actually changed recently. So the statute of limitations has been extended, and I don't want to misspeak, but um, I believe it was extended to 50 years or something more like that. So you have a lot more time now to report any of that, and that was kind of associated with the Me Too movement. I know the nuances are different um, on the Air Force base Mm -hmm. or on any of the bases, um, but I know that Felicia actually used to serve um, with the military sexual trauma on the Air Force base. I did. I was the sexual assault response coordinator at Creech Air Force Base for several years and so um you guys are spot on so many of the things that you discuss that are barriers to reporting so much of the um, resistance and reluctance when we're talking about um, our males to come forward and, and speak about this and the statute of limitations to go back to what you're saying dr anders for um military right for rape for actual Mm -hmm. rape Mm -hmm. is uh there is no statute of limitations anymore um and then any other of the um issues or violations that fall under that umbrella it just depends upon really what the state law is regarding statute of limitations for a particular act um the 50 years Mm -hmm. is how long the military will keep on file a report that a military member makes about um, whether or not they were assaulted so yeah you guys are spot on and it, it is it's still something that we work really hard to try to bring to the forefront in the military environment that it is ongoing you know prevent report advocate is the sapum they call it in the military sexual assault awareness prevention month logo for this year um, starts with a prevention we absolutely want people to report so that we can assist where we can and we advocate for the people who have experienced um and then I would add, of... come to the VA and get treated. Absolutely, right? so, yes. <laughs> prevent, report, advocate, and then treatment. That of course. part. Because, I mean, obviously sexual assault is the most horrific and most intimate violation that can occur to a Absolutely. person. Um, and many, many people will develop PTSD because of it. Not always, but many will. But as we know, PTSD is a very treatable disorder. So. And, you know, even if you did not report it while you were in the military if it's something that, that you are feeling repercussions from later on and you're, you know, as a veteran, you can absolutely come to the VA and absolutely. still get treatment for absolutely. it. Absolutely. And you wouldn't have to make any official report that would trail back, but we would, you know, um, obviously if the veteran was okay with it, we would document it in our charts because there's a lot of benefits um, to, th- you get treatment. That's one of the rules. So there's an MST clause that basically says it doesn't matter how long you serve, doesn't matter your SES, all those different, you know, enrollment stuff that I don't know too much about the criteria. But if you experience any type of MST, and that's a big umbrella, um, you will be offered free treatment for the MST. So that is a benefit of reporting. So with being the, you know, the sexual, uh, was it sexual assault, the sexual response, assault coordinator? response coordinator, the SARC for sure. SARC, yes. Thank you. Yeah, it's been five years since I was in the Air Force. So yeah. For Go me, Big Blue. Yeah. <laughs> so from being the SARC, it, it, you know, a base like Creech where, you know, there's a lot of people who work in some pretty secret squirrel yeah, activities. Absolutely. 
Um, was there a lot of fear of reprisal or fear of like career repercussions? Yes. Yeah. And I think it's safe to say that that's um, an impediment across the board, not just in one of those, you know, super secret squirrel locations Mm -hmm. like Creech. Um, It's also an impediment to seeking services because, you know, sometimes um, it can impact someone's security clearance. It can impact their readiness for duty. Um, So there is there are some career implications, as Dr. Anders mentioned earlier, that kind of will prevent and preclude people from coming forward. However, I really think that that's, again, where encouraging people to step up to the VA, right? To let us help either once they separate from um, their time in uniform or our partners at the vet center are a really wonderful resource and asset for our active duty members while they're still in uniform. And that's so important for you know you to have that experience too as a SARC because everyone who's gone through some of those computer-based trainings when you're in the active duty, you remember there's a very like, there's a, it's a difficult like map to kind of orient by yourself of like what's considered to be a unrestricted rapport <laughs> or restricted report. And I still don't understand it. And, uh, you know, I obviously I work in the vet with veterans. And so it's post, you know, once everyone's separated, but I do a lot of work, you know, with the Air Force. And I'm still like, okay, can you explain this to me? So I, it's good to have people in that role that you know, they can go to. Yeah. It's very confusing. Yeah. It can be. Um, the, the, the DOD as a whole is trying to simplify that and they're trying to expand the protections, if you will, under restricted reporting. I think a lot of that comes from just that military mindset of we don't want predators in our midst, right? So we want unrestricted reports. We want to hold people accountable for their behavior. But I think the shift to what is equally in my opinion, more important than, quote, getting the bad guy is helping um, the person that was impacted by the trauma. So, And, and it just seems like having, having a reporting structure is like, well, you didn't tell the right person, so now everybody can know that you right. just went through this, would, would have an immediately chilling effect on, on being able to or even wanting to report something like that. It's, it, it astounds me. You're absolutely right. And so the, everyone knows the SARC as the touch point, right? And then you can have these very confidential conversations and decide in your own time and of your own volition what you would like to do in terms of do I want an unrestricted report? Do I want a restricted report? What types of supports and services would I like? So, And the absolutely. good news is here at the VA... There's no such reporting system. Right. <laughs> you get to come to, if you, and also a lot of people say, well, no one would believe me and these kind of things. Here we believe you. Here we, you say it happened, we believe you it happened. There's, there's no proof that needs to be had and all these things of the past. Um, if you say that you experienced sexual trauma, we have programs for you. We will get you a therapist. There's a lot of confidential, confidentiality. There's groups if you should choose to go into those. So that's the best part about, um, you know, for our veterans who are listening you know, you don't have to go through the hoops on this end. Exactly. Yeah, and one thing that was great about, you know, talking to you the first time uh, when we were addressing some of the MST programs was, you know, before the pandemic had brought, you know, telemedicine and telehealth into the, you know, popular vernacular, um, you guys were pioneering that. Yes. So when I first came to this VA in 2016, we did not have an MST program. Um, So I was the MST program, which kind of is what Felicia's doing with her program, which I know we'll talk about in a little bit. But we have grown so much. We have many psychologists and social workers who are part of the program. We have multiple groups going now. So the program has grown a lot and it's continuing to grow. And luckily, 
you know, all of, it's national mandate. So all the other VAs across the nation have to have this. And um, we were ahead of the game for a bit. So it's great to hear. And it's, I know a lot of people have used kind of that, uh, that template that you guys built to, uh, to kind of work the, the, the pandemic era of telemedicine. So yeah. um, it's great to hear that's flourishing since then. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with Dr. Anders and Felicia Duville talking about April being Sexual Assault Awareness Month. You're listening to The Nine Line, a production of the VA Southern Nevada Healthcare System. We'll be back with more right after this. Wake up and text. Text and eat. Mm-mm. Text and meet up with a friend you haven't seen in forever. Hi. Oh, hey. Text and complain that they're on their phone the whole time. <sighs> text and listen to them complain that you're on your phone the whole time. Uh. Text and whatever. But when you get behind the wheel, give your phone to a passenger. Put it in the glove box. Just don't text and drive. Visit StopTextsStopRex.org. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council. Getting a flu shot helps us stay healthy so we don't miss out on what matters. Like that family movie night your daughter can't live without. (coughs) Yeah, can't do that. Every year, millions of people in the U.S. get the flu. Especially now, no one has time to miss out on moments that matter. So get your flu shot. Find out more at GetMyFluShot.org. Brought to you by the AMA, CDC, and the Ad Council. This is the story of a very special woman. Just a few knew about her superpowers. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources at aarp.org caregiving. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Welcome back to The Nine Line, Southern Nevada's source for veteran-related health care news and information. Here's your hosts, John Archiquette and Joshua Gray. Welcome back to the Nine Line Podcast. John and Josh here with Dr. Nicole Anders and Felicia Duville. We're talking about uh, April being Sexual Assault Awareness Month and intimate partner violence. Uh, now, intimate partner violence is something that, like we mentioned earlier, is you know a very large, encompassing topic. Um, you know, sexual assault is, is part of that, but there are so many other things that fall within the the realm of what you're responsible for. Uh, tell us a little bit more about what that in- involves. So absolutely. Um, we touched a little bit on it when we were discussing MST, right? Everyone thinks in terms of the, the sexual violence that can occur between intimate partners. But under our VA definition of intimate partner violence, it can also include financial and technological abuses and coercion, uh, repro- reproductive abuses and coercion, um, emotional, psychological abuses or coercion. Um, and stalking. So we have several things that fall under the umbrella of intimate partner violence and sort of what it encompasses. So, I mean, that, that's all kinds of different harassment and everything as well. Absolutely, yeah. How common is that, um, I guess, among the, the veteran community? And do you think it's more prevalent among veterans than the general population? So we have some data from the National Center for PTSD that shows that our veteran population are twice as likely to both use and experience intimate partner violence. 
Um, some of that is because they noticed that our veterans come into the military with higher rates of trauma exposure. Um, and then the uniquenesses that are attached to military service, right? The, the combat exposure and the separations and deployments and all of those things are more um, predisposing factors for a lack of safety and, and some um, aggression and violence in intimate partner relationships. So yeah, we do see it happening with our veterans at higher rates, unfortunately. So what's kind of the, the order of your response if someone presents to you with a case of intimate partner violence? I mean, obviously, I would assume the first step would be to ensure their safety. Um, but like, what, what's the, the order that you go through? So absolutely. Safety is always a paramount concern. Um, when we're talking intimate partner violence, we're also talking about mitigating suicidality and homicidality. Um, and it really just depends. So the way that the VA has the IPVAP set up, is that it's comprehensive and it's integrated throughout our VA. So someone could present in the primary care environment where we have specialty champions there who are familiar um, with intimate partner violence and ways to direct veterans, family members, VA employees to resources, intervention services. They could come in through our trauma program, uh, through our MST track. They could come in through our ADTP program. So it really will be very uh, dependent and unique to the person presenting and exactly what their presenting needs are. We have that kind of flexibility, which I think is great. How much education do you have to do about what intimate partner violence consists of? Because to me, up until three minutes ago, when you say intimate partner violence, because of, I guess, the ordering of the words in there, um, I think of sexual assault, right? I, I would not think of intimate partner violence as violence against an intimate partner I would think of intimate, oh, okay. right? right? More, more sexual right. assault. Intimacy. So, so, uh, like, how much how much education do you end up doing with trying to get people to understand that it's not just sexual assault, but it's also that litany of other things that that you listed? You know, um, emotional abuse, financial, reproductive, all of that. Right, quite a bit, and actually, that's a big part of what the IPVAP coordinator does is that we call it universal education. We want to talk about it from every angle. We want to um, discuss and how IPV is even different from traditional, quote, domestic violence, right? I was going to say that that's the term that we used to use and now we've evolved. So even for us in mental health, I will say there's been education around the new languaging. Absolutely. Traditional domestic violence is really anybody in the home. So let's say we have a veteran who's cousin lives in the home with them is maybe their caregiver and there's some violence going on that's domestic violence but that's not that intimate partner violence um and also some education around what exactly makes something an intimate partner relationship because for our purposes perhaps a, you went on a date with somebody a year ago one date and now they're stalking you that would still allow us in the VA to come alongside and provide support and resources, intervention. That is still considered intimate partner violence. So there is a lot of ongoing and really robust education around exactly what it means. So uh, you, you mentioned that the terminology's evolved. What what kind of led to that? What's what's what causes kind of the parsing of that out a little bit more finely? I would think that well, and this is this is a Felicia answer, right? It's sure. not a data driven answer, but I think it's the awareness, right? The more we talk about it and the more that um, iterations of it kind of come to the surface and we see what people are experiencing, sometimes in order to um, address something most appropriately, we have to have the best understanding of it. And so it's kind of like MST and IPV. 
right? Um, just because something is military sexual trauma doesn't necessarily mean it will be IPV. However, it could be, and there are nuances to it when it's IPV. So we want to be able to provide the best response resource intervention. So we have to know what we're dealing with. You know, interestingly enough, looking at some of the studies, um, you know, researching some of this, because I, again, I, I wasn't aware of all of the, the gamut of things that fell in under IPV. Um, you know, some people, uh, so some demographics seem to be, you know, deal with more issues of IPV, or at least there's more reported cases. Um, and surprisingly, that among veterans, women veterans that identified as lesbian, uh, bisexual, or questioning were two or three times more likely to report experiencing IPV than women in, in heterosexual relationships. Um, why do you think that is? And what is the, our program doing to reach out to, like, members of these groups to ensure that they feel protected and represented by the VA. I think that a big part of it is a lot of what we do in our diversity and inclusion uh, committee right now and making sure that I'm staying well connected with them and the um, previously marginalized communities that they support um, to make sure that everyone is well aware that we treat everyone in the VA. Everyone is respected and protected. And again, it just goes back to a lot of outreach. I do a lot of connection with community partners. So the LGBTQ Center here in Las Vegas has become one of our new community partners and making sure that they know and can share with the veterans that they come in contact with that we have um, very sensitive and um, validating services here at the VA for everybody, regardless of how you identify. Everybody is welcome. Now, for a significant other of a veteran, so uh, you know, somebody who's a non-veteran who's the partner of a veteran, if they're experiencing these, you know, IPV issues, are they welcome to to come to the VA or to talk to a VA counselor about some of the things that their partner may be experiencing? Absolutely. And in fact, encouraged. And in our um, evidence-based treatment modalities that we are going to be bringing on to the VA, partner outreach and involving the significant other in the treatment is um, part of what makes Strength at Home is the name of our program, what makes it so successful in the VAs that have it implemented thus far. So absolutely, we would highly encourage anyone who is veteran connected for lack of a better term to reach out to the VA and find out what services and supports are available for their veteran and for themselves. And I think that's one of the biggest barriers um, I'm seeing in you know as a clinician in the PTSD program and just talking to a lot of veterans there's a lot of shame that goes into intimate partner violence either you know it's happening to you or on the flip side, you're the one who's being violent and, and using intimate partner violence. And so I think you talked a lot about education, which is like step one, really important. I know that you've been educating all the specialty programs and the providers and everything like that, not only on the terminology, but what it encompasses. And then getting people, the partners to come forward or the veterans themselves to say, yeah, you know, um, I did hit my partner or I, di I am, you know, doing X, Y, Z. There's a lot of barriers there, so I'm actually, I'm gonna ask you the question, what are you thinking about doing in terms of how we can work through those barriers? I think a lot of that comes from um, the relationships that we create with the veterans that we that we serve, regardless of the environments that we meet them in, whether it's in our primary medical environment, whether it's in one of our specialty programs or other places in behavioral health, and that we destigmatize a lot of these issues. It's going to be in the way that we screen 
for these issues and then the way that we respond to veterans when they do have um, they overcome the fear of saying I'm experiencing this or I'm utilizing this because our modalities are for both so absolutely I really think it has a lot to do with appropriate screening identification and then assessment early on to help develop that relationship with the veterans and encourage that comfort level. Speaking of barriers, um, you know, obviously uh, what's socially acceptable changes. Um, and we have folks from, from older generations that may not view things that are currently accepted as intimate partner violence uh, as, as such, you know, you, you've, there, there's, there used to be kind of the, the, the way of thinking that you can't rape your wife, right? Um, how do you deal when when you run into kind of that that cultural disconnect where this is what it is today and you tell somebody that and they go no it's not that's what do you mean that's just that's just how I treat my wife and, and but they come from kind of a a culturally uh, a, a cultural place that's kind of maybe stuck in the past generational gap yes thank yeah you. that's what I meant thanks that's a big part of it um, and I think again it just comes down to that person-centered conversation, right? Addressing that person where they are, discussing with them their belief system and kind of how that impacts the person on the other end of that belief system. So I really think that it will always, first and foremost, start with our connection with the veterans and the way we understand their perspective to get them to open up enough to where we can re-educate, right? Or or sort of re-inform. Um, you know, it's not always looking at it as one side versus the other, but are there issues in your relationship that maybe are the result of things that have always just seemed the way they're supposed to be? And how can we help them reformulate and readdress? You, you talk about that from, from a perspective of having a, a, a person that you're dealing with that is open to that conversation. Um, how, how do you deal with that challenge if they just look you in the eye and go, well, this isn't a problem. Like I'm not, they're not receptive to that, right? They just say, well, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not abusing anybody. That's just how it is. Like, how do you deal with that? I mean, it's, I don't know, maybe it's the old adage, you can drag a horse to water, right? Sure. So yeah. um, I think then that becomes where we get creative as clinicians and we say, okay, well, what are the issues that are going on in your life, right? And try to see if we can draw lines or parallels or or find a way to indirectly bring them back to maybe this is problematic. Um, and there are times, unfortunately, where people just say, eh, not for me. And and I think it's okay important too. to note on that same question. So as clinicians, we have certain mandated reporting. So for example, if a patient tells you about child abuse, elder abuse, suicidality, homicidality, all of these things are reportable regardless of if the patient wants you to or not. Intimate partner violence, that is not. That is not something as a mental health professional is reportable. So it stays confidential. Um, that is a pro and con to that, right? If safety is an issue, we want to address that, but we also can't break the confidentiality. So that's another sticky piece. Absolutely. Um, so in some ways, maybe the veteran will, will feel safer because they're like, oh, you, you can't report this, and um, this really does stay confidential. And so when in the past when I've worked with that, um, I've just kind of encouraged the partner then maybe to report themselves or something like that. So, you know, looking at safety and all this, it is sticky, but as long as you have that relationship, great. When you don't, in the case that you said, sometimes there's only so many things we can do. We have to get creative. 
Absolutely. Well, and I think that, you know, I'm sure just as many situations arise that are opposite from what you were talking about, Josh. You, know, you may have a number of people who don't recognize that they're the victim of abuse. Yes. You know, they, yes. they, whether they were raised with it or, you know, they're stuck into a cycle of abuse or they just don't want to admit it because the person that's, you know, mistreating them or abusing them is someone they love. Yeah. So how do you get someone to realize that, like, I am an, a victim of this. I, I don't deserve to be treated this way. Well, first of all, I think some of that comes in our languaging, right? Like, I love that you, you kind of set me up for a good one there, John. When we talk about the word victim, especially our veterans, they do not like to be referred to as victims, right? So some of it's in the way that we um, describe things, which is why we say experiencer of violence, right? It's sometimes when we just word it differently, it will open up the mind. It will open people up to say, oh, I have experienced that. Oh, that has happened to me. And yes, there were some negative fallout or, or sequelae following that. So um, the, again, back to the education piece, it's vital. Um, and then trying to help people understand how some of those experiences maybe contribute to any difficulties that they're currently experiencing in their lives. And then we don't stay there, right? We talk about this is this potentially is what happened. This is potentially some of the result. But now where do we go and what can we do? So I think that just as important as getting people to understand that maybe what they experienced was abusive is helping them to know that they don't have to stay stuck in whatever challenges or problems that that experience created. And I think that understanding is, you know, the key example of why we have the recognition of awareness month like we do for April, because it's important that we, you know, open those lines of communication and keep people informed about, you know, what their rights are and, you know, what the avenues and resources that we have here at the VA. Absolutely. So, ladies, thank you both so much for joining us today. This is great. And uh, Felicia, definitely look, look forward to having you here again. Oh, that'd be great. Thank you so much for inviting me. And you too, Josh. <laughs> Bye, Felicia. <laughs> I've never heard that I'm before. sure you haven't. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And um, for, you know, we, we are doing the Denim Day here for the VA staff members who um, who are, you know, listening to the podcast. But um, there are also other resources or other things you guys have planned. Is there going to be a resource table available? This yes. This coming Friday, we will have a resource table available down in the main atrium here in the Vamsey. And again, the uh, last Friday of the month, so Friday the 29th, please come out, take our white ribbon pledge to stand up against assault and harassment. Um, and just stop by, say hi, and get some awareness, education, and information. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. And thank you for listening. We'll see you in two weeks in the online podcast. You've been listening to The Nine Line, a production of the VA Southern Nevada Healthcare System. For more information about what the VA is doing for Nevada's veterans, check out our official webpage at www.lasvegas.va.gov or follow us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Las Vegas VA. Thanks for listening. <laughs>